You're listening to the Be So Good podcast with Colin Pierce. Colin says you are 10 times better than you think. So why not be so good that they simply can't ignore you? Here's your host, Colin Pierce. You're about to meet one of my best friends and a very fascinating man. He began his career as a young fellow with BP Australia in Perth, a young cadet. And then he moved to Brisbane with BP. And not long after that, he got the call, as we used to say. Uh, He became a Church of Christ minister. In fact, he studied for many, many years and got his brain in gear. And then he began an illustrious career as a minister of churches, which he grew phenomenally just by nature of his strong and courageous, insightful leadership. I think all of that got him involved in the Dale Carnegie Institute because for 25 years, he was a Dale Carnegie lecturer, becoming an expert in all forms of communication, memory work and stress management. Today, Graham's retired. Well, that's what he says, but people keep asking him to be interim pastors of their churches. And so for the last six or seven years, that's what he's done. He goes and steps in and rescues somebody and does a great job of it. And he does it without any stress. So please, will you welcome my very good friend, Graham Agnew. Hi, Carl. Good to be with you. And you too. Graham, you've been uh, very busy over the years. How do you stop yourself getting stressed? Well, uh, I guess uh, in various ways, Carl, I have a belief, and it's been a growing belief over many years, that stress is not like, a, it's not like being on a runaway train you know, where you're hurtling down a mountain and it's going to end in disaster and you've got no control. In actual fact, we do have uh, a lot of control in the way we manage stress. We can actually make decisions. We can choose to follow certain principles. And over the years, I guess I've just acquired a whole list of of principles and techniques that I've personally applied to try to uh, not eradicate, but at least manage the level of stress which comes to all of us inevitably where it's I mean stress is a reality of life and a lot of stress is positive well let's talk about let's talk about stress in terms of today do you find it's uh, how serious is stress as a problem in 2021 well uh the uh, the ex the so-called experts like uh, people like the uh, psychological association of australia uh, their surveys tell us that 35 percent of Australians have what they call as significant levels of stress in their lives. So there's one in three. Now, as I said a moment ago, a lot of stress is, is, is positive. We, we, we're at our best when we feel the pressure to, to excel. Uh, you know yourself from your speaking career, you know, the nerves you get before a speaking engagement, that's stressful, but it's a positive because it brings out your best. But if we've got one in three people who are saying, look, we are really feeling the, the burden of living, and uh, we're constantly in a in a state of uh, of wondering, you know, what what the future holds. That's a pretty serious problem, Colin. Of course, it's been accelerated and accentuated by this uh, COVID pandemic that we're in. Um, that's introduced a whole new range of things for people to worry about. How is stress man- manifesting itself with people? How do people uh, find themselves stuck with it? I think it varies from person to person, Cole, but uh, the obvious ones are, you know, it can affect health, uh, sleeplessness, 
uh, irritability, which affects relationships. Of course, at the wider social level, a lot of people cope with stress through uh, uh, involvement with uh, drugs or gambling. And so that introduces a whole lot of you know, social problems that the government and other agencies have got to try and manage. But just in a sort of regular kind of person, um, I think it's mainly in the area of how they handle relationships and just their general health. I know medical people who tell me that they, they put it as high as 70% of all illnesses can be attributed to worry and stress in one form or another. And that's, that's a pretty frightening statistic. I must say over the years, dealing with people pastorally, now this, uh, this is sort of, I've got no empirical evidence for this. It's just anecdotal evidence. But people who are really, really stressful and really, really anxious all the time, uh, in my experience, often they are people who have a corresponding number of, of health issues. It doesn't follow, I, you know, as I say, it's just been an observation. Mm -hmm. I, I've come to the realisation, this is one thing I have found, people handle their crises pretty much like they handle their life when things are going okay. So if you're a fairly relaxed let's see what happens, uh, we'll get through this kind of person in normal circumstances. When the news comes that you've got a terminal illness or there's been a tragedy, you'll probably eventually handle that crisis in the same way that you've handled your life in general. You are speaking, of course, from the experience of meeting the lovely Christine and living with the gorgeous Beverly. These are yes. two of the least stressful individuals I've ever met and if they don't live to 110 each I'll be astounded but I won't be there <laughs> neither will you <laughs> well they are very serene both are we're very blessed with very uh, what I call serene wives cold who keep us in check and well that and, gives uh, me a clue that it's sort of a genetic gift to not be the kind that gets themselves worked up would that be fair I mean mind you I do get a bit of cold shoulder and hot tongue now and again uh, but, but it is, it is uh, now and again. So do you think temperament has a bit to do with it? Oh, I'm sure of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are people who are more inclined to panic and stress than, than others based on, the, on temperament, as you say. But I think right across the board, there are decisions that anybody can make, irrespective of temperament. Once you know what the techniques are, and, and of course, like anything, you've got to really apply yourself. Like... Uh, I'll give you an example. It's very simple and most people would know this, but I refuse to worry about anything that I cannot directly influence. Now, I'll give you an example. We, we raised two teenage kids and Saturday nights, uh, most important thing for a pastor is to get a good night's sleep. And we went through the, the period with the kids when they were teenagers where they go off to the city and uh, Bev, who is normally very composed, but when it comes to the kids, she can be a little bit anxious. And she used to say, oh, gosh, I wonder what's happening. Or we'd hear something on the television. There'd been a skirmish in, in uh, Highly Street or something. And I would say quite deliberately, look, darling, in today's society, those kids are carrying ID. If something happens, we will get a phone call or we'll get a knock at the door. That's when we'll start to stress. Until then, there's absolutely no way in the world we can influence the situation. Uh, these were before the tracker, you know, the trackers you can get on phones. We didn't know exactly where the kids were. So what, what else can you do? So you can, you can actually train yourself. And the same with travel. I mean, how many of us have been at an airport and the, the comes over the PA? Sorry, that flight's been delayed by two hours or whatever. What are you going to do? You're going to go up and pound the desk. Sorry, I need to get to Sydney. I must get on that thing. 
like you cannot control that, you cannot influence it. And I've been in those situations. And so what do you do? You just think, okay, now how can I maximize this next couple of hours by doing things that'll that'll save you doing them in a two hour time slot at another time? You just sort of got, and it's, it takes, I guess uh, it takes um, intentionality and you've got to uh, be quite deliberate in your choice, but, but it is a choice you can make. People get many stressed or many sessions of stress, say, for example, um, fear of flying or a flying experience, which stresses them momentarily when they get back on the ground, they're their normal unstressed self. I remember yes. flying from Christchurch to Adelaide across the New Zealand Alps, the Southern Alps, aren't they? isn't that what they're called anyway? Yes. Um, the plane was bouncing around something horrible, mate. Uh, I could see the, you know, at the window, the wings are going up and down at a great rate. And I hung on to my seat. I have no idea why. Because <laughs> if, if I went, it went regardless. Um, after about 15 minutes of this pretty nerve-wracking stuff where my, I could feel myself perspiring, I was heated up, the pilot said, yeah, sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. We uh, often get a bit of turbulence across the Alps there. And uh, you probably saw the wings flapping up and down. They had another two or three feet to go because uh, these wings are designed to uh, resist that kind of pressure. And I thought to myself, you might have told us that before we got to the place. <laughs> that was over. I didn't remain stressed about it. Um, so there's short-term stress and there's long-term stress, isn't there? What's, what's the difference? Has somebody actually talked themselves into staying stressed and wired about everything? Well, I think in your case, that, that example you've just given, Cole, that, that highlights another principle uh, with stress, and that is, that is knowledge and awareness. You know, we become stressed and fearful about the things we don't understand. Now, when you mentioned about being about flying, um, I have to tell you, I went through a period of my life, uh, particularly uh, was when we had kids, and I guess I started to think of my own mortality and what that would mean for the kids if ever it happened, if ever my death, my um, premature death took place. And I was an absolute white knuckle flyer, was for years, and it was at a time, unfortunately, when I was doing a lot of flying, and I found out about people who would be dropped off at the airport by their colleagues or by their uh, you know, uh, somebody in the company, and they would then go make their own way to a train. This was between Adelaide and Melbourne, and they'd actually catch a train across. I, I, I heard of it, extreme cases. <laughs> that. So I was a very nervous flight. But then into my life came a most wonderful guy who was a senior captain with Ansett Airlines, as it was then here in Adelaide. And he heard of my problem, and he, he arranged for me to sit up in the cockpit with him uh, on a flight between Adelaide, uh, Sojourner, Port Lincoln, and then back to Adelaide. So I sat in the so-called dicky seat up there, and I came to the realisation, these guys want to get down back to earth as much as I do. And I saw exactly what's involved in flying a plane and keeping it. He answered every one of my questions. I was the sort of guy, I'd, I'd be sitting on the tarmac, I'd hear this bump, bump, bumping, and I'd think, do the air hostesses, can they hear that? What, what's that? Is something loose? Is something falling off? They're just throwing the bags into the cargo hold, you know. So it's sort of... Knowledge is, is, is one way. Increasing one's knowledge and overcoming is a way of overcoming fears and reducing stress, as you've just proved. But I think some stress is, is very um, uh, is long-term, like a fear of flying. That can just go on and on and on. Other stress is short-term, like for years, 
I would circulate, I would circulate, circular, circulate the block around a house I was meant to visit to see if they had a dog. And this was before mobile phones. And of course, even up until recent years, I would phone a home and say, look, I, I noticed you've got a, a dog up the side there. I'm about to, I'm out the front. Is he okay? Now that's, that's me. I had a bad experience with a dog when I was, when I was a little boy. My mother got attacked by Alsatians and I was in the pram. And so it's somewhere there in my subconscious. And, um, uh, but, but so that's, you know, people, you, you've got to, uh, stress can be, uh, can manifest itself from a bad experience for, for most of a person's life, unless you take steps to overcome it. Mm, there's, there's a lot of, well, we could go and talk about all the causes of stress and where it comes from, what it does to us. Would you say it's important for a leader to manage their stress? I'm thinking, because uh, I reckon they would manifest in anger and irritability and uncontrollable behaviour, and that'll upset the team, I guess. Did I just answer Absolutely. that question myself? Yeah. Well, Carl, I think a leader has got to be able to manage stress because you've got to be aware of your environment, whether it's sales or you know whatever the, 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 uh, the business you're in. Uh, you've got to have a certain stability, a certain level of composure to understand what the uh, what what your market is. Uh, you've got to understand. You certainly, as a leader, have to invest in your staff, and they don't want somebody who's uh, constantly in a state of panic or, uh, as you say, irritability and so on. Uh, and I think there's a lot of modelling involved in being a leader as well. Uh, I love the old saying, you know, calm people, calm people. And uh, I've had experiences in my uh, ministry when we pass through various crises as a, as a ministry team and uh, I've always sought to give strong leadership in the sense of you know remaining as um, uh, as together as I can and in, in that in that way inspiring the team to uh, to hang on tightly believing we will get through this you know um, you can again as a, another great principle that I've used quite over the years is um, answering three questions you know what is the worst that can happen and then how can I prepare for the worst? And, and if you only go that far, that's, 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 that's going to increase your stress. The third, the third question is, how can I improve on the worst? So what is the worst? How can I prepare? How can I improve on the worst? And in, I lived in Sydney for many years. And the guy who lived across from me was a very successful business guy. And I saw him up in the shops one day up at Macquarie Shopping Centre. And he was very distressed. Uh, in fact, the first time I'd ever seen him really distressed, he was usually a very together guy. He was with his wife and they both had tears in their eyes. Turns out he'd just been told he had stage four prostate cancer. And so we, my wife and I, we paused, had a chat with him and, you know, sort of tried to offer support. And I asked the question, I said, hey, Bob, how long have you, how long have you known about this? And it all came out. He'd had the symptoms for over 12 months he said, haven't you seen my light on in the study? He said, I'm up all night Googling and trying to figure out what's going on. I said, did you go to a doctor? He said, I didn't want to know. I just thought I'd... Here I am. Extreme example. I'll admit, extreme example. Oh. Very extreme. Oh, I, I, I know people are in exactly the same position and they do that. I'd rather not know. Well, you'd rather spend the rest of your life in a box, for goodness sake. Yeah. So, yeah, there was a guy who in every other part of his life, business-wise, he'd been very successful, but had just he, he just reduced himself to a, a, a sort of a, a blubbering mess, literally, because he hadn't been prepared to start that process of three simple questions. What's the worst that can happen? Well, I've got cancer. How can I improve or how can I prepare for that? And there's a whole range of ways with all the, 
knowledge we've got and people have been through it and so on, how can I improve on the worst? Well, I can, you know, talk to people who've beaten cancer. I can talk to people who've been through a similar experience. What, how they managed and so on. So there's, you know, uh, these are, but, but you've got to have intentionality to be able to yeah. go down that pathway. Graham, you, a lot of people won't know the, one of the more intricate details of your trip to Sydney. You were called from a very successful, very strong, large church here in Adelaide to go to a church in Sydney, which had gone through a bit of a, a trial of one or two issues and was also facing a big building program. And uh, that, that would be enough to drive anybody spare. A big developer offering to buy your property and build a multi-story over it and let you have two floors for a church. You must have gone through hell and high water. Well, it was something I wasn't prepared for in theological college, Colin, I can tell you that. Fortunately, some of my business background did kick in, but, but I was surrounded in that church, which was on the lower north shore of Sydney, uh, very blessed to be surrounded by extremely capable people. And so we formed a task group, and, uh, and that task group worked for about uh, two to three years to pull that project off. And uh, today uh, it stands there in Crow's Nest, uh, that church occupies three levels of a seven-storey residential tower. And uh, it's one of the most exciting building projects that our denomination has ever undertaken. But, yeah, the stress levels during that project, Cole, were off the chart. Um, that, was, that, that was a period where for a number of months I slept with a, a notepad next to uh, my bed because I wanted to avoid a situation where I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm sure many people can identify with this, you wake up in a sweat because the problem that you thought you could leave when you, when you drifted off to sleep, all of a sudden it comes back to you in the middle of the night. So the reason for the pad was to answer four questions. What is the problem? What is this thing that I've suddenly woken up about that's causing me to, to not, not sleep? What is the problem? What are the causes of the problem? That's number two. Um, Number three, what are the possible solutions? Let your mind just go wild right down into the sort of, even no matter how crazy. And then what is the best possible solution? Now, for me, in the absence of any other formula, trying to answer those four questions was a lot better than just lying there helplessly tossing and turning and, 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 and you know, coming up with no answers. And that was one application of those four questions. One of the best applications was one of our Dale Carnegie graduates many years ago in Melbourne. He was in a job where his whole life was made up of people knocking on his door and saying, hey, Dave, we've got a problem. Now, he was in a manufacturing right. industry. And, I mean, you imagine that's, that's his, his whole life was, hey, Dave, we've got a problem. In brackets, Dave, my problem, I want it to become your problem. So he produced a little card with these four questions printed on the card. What is the problem? What are the causes of the problem? What are the possible solutions? What is the best possible solution? His life changed dramatically because people would come to the door, hey, Dave, we've got a problem. And he would reach one of these cards and say, stop, don't say a word. Take this card, go back to your team, and you come back when you've got answers. His story to the class was all of a sudden the number of people knocking on my door has gone down by about two-thirds. They were wow. solving their own problem. And look, to this day, it's one of the best examples I've heard of a simple technique, very simple. I mean, anybody could have thought of it as it happens, Dale Carnegie did back in the 30s. But that transformed the effectiveness and the efficiency of that whole plant. Look, if you're listening to this 
as a podcast, but you haven't gone to the YouTube channel to see the podcast there in video format, uh, you will also see a little download where I have produced a card. And if you can copy that and print it off, stick it back to back to make it stiff and hard, you can go and give it to everybody in your organisation. I reckon that's a great little story, Graham, and I think that'll sweep the nation as people get hold of that simple idea. Good for you. Graham, the, uh, the thought occurs to me that many people don't do something like that. They stay asleep or they stay semi-asleep, tossed, and, oh, should I have gone to the toilet? Mm. I should have gone to the toilet half an hour ago. Oh, they're still thinking, oh, what shall I do? And then they wake up their partner and have a bit of a whinge to them, and it just isn't going to work, is it? No. It's, well, as I say, Colt, in the absence of any other formula, and I've... Uh, that they got me through a lot of tough, uh, tough spots during that project in in Sydney, and in other ways that I, other challenges I've faced over the years. Good, good on you. Uh, I asked you at the beginning how you control stress in your life. You can see a clue how I control stress in mine. It's right behind me. That is a rose that I struck from a cutting. It's Mr. Lincoln. I own the Mr. Lincoln a rose bush and I took some cuttings and made myself a Mr. Lincoln and right alongside there in the little pot where they're growing is another one that I got from Christine's sister and uh, we didn't know the name of it but it comes out as a beautiful rich blood red so we call it Auntie Leslie and those two are my pride and joy uh, but I have about 25 rose bushes and that's how I control stress except in the winter waiting for those first leaves but I've got to say can't do anything about that rain and sunshine they'll all come along but that's why I put the rose behind us because it's such a beautiful peaceful thing very attractive Cole. very attractive now I asked you earlier at the beginning how you control stress in your life one of them is going for long drives wishing you were in a uh, Pontiac Bonneville from 1968 <laughs> wow, you remember the model. I've, I've only, I think I've only ever shared that with you once. That is my favourite American classic car, a 1964 Pontiac Bonneville or anything from the 60s, actually, with the Bonnevilles. Yeah, look, I... I, um, I, I had like one. Is when we lived in America, we had a Pontiac Bonneville, a cream one, with yeah. velour seats. It, it was beautiful. Yes. Rode along the ground. Very, very good to steer through the snow drift. That was great fun. You prefer the 64. The only reason I say 64 colours because in that year, my best friend at high school, uh, I was in high school in Sydney, and his father imported one from America. And uh, so I felt very proud to be best friends with the, with the guy whose dad had a 64 Bonneville because that was a pretty big deal in those Indeed. days. Okay, but long drives and um, interesting places. Is that your story for reducing your own stress? Yes, I love to get away. I've developed the ability, I think, Cole, of being able to switch off from uh, the stresses of, of my role, which is ministry. Um, I, I've developed over the years what I call the, the smelly camel syndrome. Um, in, in the course of any given day, I will talk to a lot of people about their issues, their problems. When they've got me, they've got me 100%. They'll bring in their smelly camels and I'll pat the smelly camel and we'll talk about the smelly camel. But the idea is at the end of that uh, meeting, they take the smelly camel so that I haven't got an office of smelly camels at the end of the day. Now, I'm, I'm, was, wait a minute. I'm, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck, but follow the metaphor through. Smelly camels do leave an odour 
how long does the odour stay with you in terms of stress? Because well, some of them are very awful. Well, I guess that comes under the heading of, you know, being a caring person. Naturally, I get affected. I, all, all people, in the, in, anybody in the people business, if you're hearing about issues and concerns, naturally you get affected by people's sadness and sorrows. But you've got to be very careful for your own effectiveness not to carry all of that with you because your bag is going to fill up very, very quickly. And so just to be able to detach yourself and, and rejuvenate and, and, uh, and refresh your own spirit and your own mind, very important. So for me, um, walks on the beach uh, are uh, a very important part of my stress reliever and uh, drives in the country. And I get, I get, I get certain projects. I'm, I love photography and I get into certain projects uh, on my computer. And, and, and so, yeah. I think everybody has to have a way of, uh, of of relieving the inevitable stresses that come. I just thought of something that we could say to people who are a bit difficult and uh, constantly on edge and carrying their stress around with them. We could just go, can you smell camels? Because <laughs> 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 no, that person is still carrying the camels of you know, what happened last night, what happened at home. What happened uh, with a customer? What happened two hours before in a staff meeting? And you got to send the camels away. Exactly. Gee, they stink. Um, I rode one up Mount Sinai for two hours. I don't think I could have imagined anything worse to have to endure, <laughs> apart from the smelly rock and bumped and eager. Uh, Graham. Uh, how do you reckon your ability to manage your own stress has increased your effectiveness as a leader? A lot of people think that ministers sit around in their pyjamas till four o'clock in the afternoon and have a, have a cucumber sandwich and, and then read a book and go to bed. It ain't nothing like that. There's people, there's pressure, there's volunteers who quit, there's volunteers who want to start, who aren't competent. Oh, my goodness. How has it made you more effective to learn to manage your stress? Well, I think, Cole, in the area of uh, vision, uh, if, if, if the feedback is correct, one of the things that people have said about my particular style of ministry is that I have the ability to paint a vision of a preferred future. And, uh, and I've helped churches to move toward that, that vision. So you've got to be um, less inclined to be a panic merchant and a stress a stressed out person to be able to formulate decisions and to be able to, to sort of assess what a church is capable of. So I've tried to major in that area. The other thing I've tried to do, Col, is create an atmosphere in which people can excel in their own particular gift areas. Um, any success I've had in ministry has been because I've had a whole bunch of people around me who've absolutely gone for it in terms of uh, using their abilities and their gifts to, to, to make an impact on the community and to make our, our faith community as effective as it can be. Uh, during that project in Sydney, I would walk into, a, into that planning meeting where, in my estimation, they were eights and nines and tens, and I would walk in and even on a good day at about a 6.75 compared to their giftedness, but I knew my role. My role was to keep them all vision-focused to keep painting the, the vision in crystal clear images and just to, you know, with my own my own persona, to be able to create a, an environment where they thought, you know, we can do this. So they're perhaps two of the main ways in which I've been able to increase my effectiveness as a leader 
by deliberately choosing ways of reducing stress. Karanya, you've given us huge value. Thank you so much. You've been brilliant this morning. And I look forward to my next stress-relieving coffee with the great GA. And uh, I wish a whole lot of other people could join us, but that'd be too stressful, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> it would be. <laughs> good on you, Carl. Really good to be part of it. Ta-da. You've been listening to Be So Good with Colin Pierce. Please share the link with someone who needs to be reminded that they are 10 times better than they think. For more episodes, check out the playlist at colinpierce.com slash podcast. And don't forget to drop a review in iTunes. It really does make a difference.